Hello, and welcome to The Beagle Has Landed. I am your host, Laura Hersher. We are going to talk today about control of your health data. When I say that, is your first thought about access, your right to access your data, or privacy? Data security is a funny thing that way. It's sort of like home security, but with home security, you just want to keep the bad people out. You don't have to worry about making sure that the homeowners can get in. They have doors for that. You put a fence around it and you're done. But health data, you have to figure out how to lock it down and open it up, how to make it both secure and accessible. This is a really complicated topic. And to be honest, a bit of an intimidating one, a world where the jargon of big data meets the jargon of government regulation meets the jargon of healthcare. So I'm very grateful to be joined today by someone who speaks all of these languages and also English. <laughs> <laughs> Devin McGraw is the lead for data stewardship and data sharing at Invite. Before that, she co-founded and served as chief regulatory officer for Citizen, a platform for patients to gather their health information. And before that, she directed the U.S. Health Privacy and Security as Deputy Director of Health Information Privacy at the HHS Office for Civil Rights and Chief Privacy Officer Acting of the Office of National Coordinator for Health IT. That's a mouthful. So she's worked in government in Silicon Valley and now in a commercial lab setting. She has a law degree and an MPH. And if I listed all the committees she sits on, it would be time to wrap things up. So Tevin, <laughs> you have all the perspectives. <laughs> Welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So when, when it comes to um, data privacy and data security, it's not only that we don't have the answers. I'm not sure we've figured out the questions. So that's where I would like to start. Let's spend a few minutes defining what's at stake. Uh, there's, there's language in our informed consents about keeping data secure and private, and we talk to patients about it, but there's a definite sense that we all know this, this is important, but honestly, I'm not sure we could define what it is we are worried about. So you spent a whole career thinking about this. What should concern us? What's the risk if someone gets access to our health data? Well, I think I think the what concerns us is a combination of a couple of things. So one is the the real possibility that that information could be used in a way that hurts you. Um, so for example, used to, um, discriminate against you. Now we do have certain areas of protect, you know, areas of life where that kind of data can't be used against us, particularly genetic data in the context of, of being employed and then, and then trying to get health insurance. But there are whole other decisions that get made based on information about you where genetic information could end up being used in ways that, you know, sort of undermine what you're trying to achieve or, or harm you in some way, labeling you as somebody that you sh that shouldn't be sold at the home, somebody who, you know, is a bad credit risk because their life might be shortened because of a genetic condition. You know, th there is this sort of possibility of harm. And, and then there's also the, more of an issue of a dignitary harm, like, you know, for people who consider that information to be private and would prefer not to share it sort of openly when it's out there, the idea that they're being judged based on a genetic predisposition, 
um, is is very concerning for folks. And so I, I often think of the, of the two main categories of harms as being sort of harm to the person, whether that's a financial harm or a dignitary harm. And then the other category is loss of trust. So if you are, um, and this happens in the healthcare context in particular, if you're you are seeking a healthcare service, seeking to use an app that 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 helps you manage a healthcare condition or helps you manage family conditions, and you can't trust what's going to happen with that data, you can't. You will feel very uncomfortable using that app or pursuing that service or 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 even getting a genetic test for fear of what might happen to that data. So so that's why it matters to care about inappropriate, um, surprising access to data in ways that people did not um, expect and don't appreciate and, and frankly, are cause them harm and anxiety. Yeah, I think from the beginning that it's interesting the way you categorize it, because I think from the beginning, that issue in genetic medicine of people perceiving there being a lack of privacy and therefore declining to participate uh, was one of the big harms that we have seen. Because there's a lot of talk about how we haven't seen the harms we expected to see, right? Like the sort of the big picture things that in 2000 and 2004, people were talking about there hasn't been a lot of dramatic lawsuits or whatever about drug use. Right. But when you talk to people out in the field, you still hear about that pressure of people being nervous, un- 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 unwilling to participate, whether it's in a study or just doing a test for themselves and so on. Yep. So I think that's a really smart point. Um, so I mentioned in the um, the cold open there that uh, health data experts have a balancing act to achieve. Yeah because it is also their role to secure a way for us to get in, to use our data. And talk to me about what the value of that. How do people use their own healthcare data in the real world? And what do we have to gain from it? Yeah, so knowledge about your own health and medical condition and even what might be um, greater risks for you given a genetic predisposition is power. It puts you in the driver's seat for decision-making, whether that's about yourself or about a family member. Um, You know, knowledge that you carry enhanced risk for something, um, assuming that you've got, you know, the capability of being able to pursue, you know, certain, uh, you know, to be able to follow a preventive testing schedule, to get regular blood work done, to be a bit more vigilant about uh, certain conditions is, is a gift. In many respects, um, you know, without that information, it, it just feels a little bit right, like roulette, right? Well, I don't know if I'm going to get this cancer, right? And it's not it's not predetermined that if you have a genetic um, a variant of some type that that enhances your risk, whether that actually turns into you having the condition or not is a is a combination of a lot of factors, including how strong of a predictor that particular variant is. But nevertheless it gives you that power. And while none of us can treat ourselves necessarily in terms of administration of of a lot of different types of medical treatment, there are certainly steps that can be taken in many cases that reduce our risk, that allow us to catch things earlier in order to avoid uh, getting a diagnosis at at such a late time that our treatment options are significantly more limited. Um, it also, you know, we 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 deal a lot in the company with um, with with families of young children, 
where the the parent for a very long time has no idea why their child is experiencing developmental delays or a host of other failures to meet different developmental milestones. And when they get a genetic diagnosis, it, 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 I mean, it's, it's often not great news, but it is okay. Now I know a bit more about what I'm facing and now I can go out and, and, and find the right resources to help me. I can find another parent group. I can find physicians who deal with this condition regularly. I can, you know, become part of a group of people seeking to improve treatments and cures. Otherwise you, 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 you lose that power without being able to access that data or having it, you know, sort of spoon fed to you on someone else's schedule. Mm. Well, what you're describing there so the first part I completely understood. Yeah. And the second part where you're describing someone that has a sick child, right. I feel like that's not an area where they're having trouble getting information. Like it, it, if, if you do a test for a reason for a child, right. Where there's a known phenotype and you know what it is. Um, they're pulling anything out of that test that they can get. Right. They're not hesitating. They're not afraid to, you know, so this isn't a matter of handing over their, their data. Right. That's not where the, I, I'm surprised because that's not where the obstacles lie. I mean, there's well, lots of obstacles in getting it right. Right. There's obstacles in terms of our knowledge base. But yeah, I mean, I think that initially to that family. Well, I mean, I think initially I was thinking, you know, a lot of families don't get offered genetic testing as an option for for trying to uh, as part of the diagnostic odyssey and try in terms of trying to think to figure out what's what why their child is not is sick, is not hitting developmental milestones. So there's there's that aspect of it, which is more of an access to care than an access to data aspect of it. But but you know, you you also have issues where, okay, let's say you do get offered a genetic test. If if you don't have that information, you are bound to what your current medical provider knows about that particular illness, as opposed to having the agency to take that data and start to explore what other treatment options might be available to you. And this is not trying to knock members of the medical profession, but I think we know that, you know, not every pediatrician is sort of up to speed on on how to treat every single different type of disorder, right? And so, you know, I'm a genetic counselor. So like what genetic counselors do on their break is sit around and talk about how other medical professionals don't know anything about genetics. Sorry. (laughs) Sorry if I'm breaking news there, but it's just, (laughs) well, but, but you're right to, um, I mean, there, there's a reason for that, which is that we don't, we don't require that medical, all medical professionals have genetics training, right? I mean, and nobody knows that better than a genetic counselor who probably deals with the, with the lack of information, if not misinformation that, that, that is out there every day. And then they're the ones that end up having to help families find, you know, the best possible treatment options and to, to provide some reassurance and to pro- provide some real facts on the ground. Um, but but people still should have that information in the agency to be able to act on their own. Um, in, where where in I thought you were going to go with the them. diagnosed child right, uh, was being able to then take that information and use it in research and so on. And, and well, I mean, that's also the, those areas, you know, sort of like. The, the the power of that information, not from one person, but from multiple families and, and, and empowering the individuals to feel safe to share it that way. 
Yeah, well, that is also a piece of this, right? There's the the sort of clinical utility of being able to have that data so that so that you can manage your own care or care for a family member. Um, but then there is the so many so often we're talking about diseases that are underserved from a you know sort of treatment options perspective. We're still learning a lot about the the, the natural history of some of these diseases, and we don't have treatments for a number of them or, or treatments are in development, but they're not, they're not so great. They have a lot of side effects. We're, we're still in development. And, and if you don't have some agency to direct that data into the research projects that are ongoing, you're sort of stuck waiting for your medical provider to participate. So, and they may or may not do that. Right. I hear this, this, these various, um, lines of thinking. I wouldn't even call them arguments because they're yeah. respect from researchers, from yeah. clinicians, and now from health privacy lawyers. Like I hear it from many places. I'm interested. Do you feel like it's coming from the patients, from the families, or that like we need to educate them about the value of their data? I think it's a little bit of both. Um, I think they, I think I think for a lot of people, and it's mostly healthy people, you don't think about the value of your health data. You barely even look at your health data. You just, you know, I I am very fortunate to fall into this camp. I get an occasional preventive test done. I take a look at what the result is, and I don't think about it ever again, right? But most of the people that I know who are monitoring a serious chronic condition or are dealing with a child or a parent who has a series, they're looking at that data all the time. They are looking at, they're looking at the data and they're looking at the clock. It's like, I, time is not on my side. Um, Especially if they have a child for whom they're very seriously sick and they're going to, um, you, you know, they're reaching premature death absent the development of more effective treatments, right? And so they want things to happen a lot more quickly than tends to be the case with the slowness of biomedical research. Um, and they they want to put their data, they want their data to go into, into research projects where it can maybe have quicker payoff. So, um, Devin, what are the so I think it's a little bit of both. What For some the people, they don't, yeah. What are the obstacles now? Like what needs to change? Oh, Many things. We're we're and the, let me first say that we're in a much better place on patients being able to easily access their health information than than used to be the case. Mostly due to a number of in the U.S. at least federal policies that are kind of trying to open up those doors a bit wider for patients to get their data. You know, historically, you had to go to the basement of the medical records office in the hospital and you were probably charged money to get copies of your records. You were probably required to get a paper copy. And if you if you were really sick or you were talking about a really sick child or family member, you're talking about stacks and stacks and stacks of paper that you know barely fit into a single box. And then how do you go through all of that data to find you know, the nuggets of important information because there's a lot of duplicative data in there. There's a lot, um, you know, of, of photocopies made, you know, with the paper barely visible. It's, you know, it was hard. It was really, really hard. And the, and that office was only open from nine to five. And most people who have regular jobs can't get there to pick it up. So, 
So we're we're sort of rapidly getting into an and not rapidly enough, but but we have definitely progressed into an era where patients can hook up a, a choose an application, right, a healthcare app, and connect it to a doctor's portal and be able to download that data and have you know sort of multiple records from multiple locations in one place, or you know they can come to you know any n- number of other services and 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 have their records gathered for them and organized and and shared in accordance with their wishes there is you know there's a there's a growing group of companies that are very much dedicated to doing just that and federal policies are really leaning on timelines for how quickly data has to be made accessible to patients and whether patients can be charged for it and to require that if that data is electronic you have to give it to the patient electronically if that's the way the patient wants it so many many things are improving, but it is still, um, it's, we're still playing catch, catch up a little bit in terms of where we ought to be and where we currently are. And frankly, some medical centers are really far advanced in terms of how easy they make it to access records. And some are not, um, some of the files that, that some of these patients and families need to access are really large and don't necessarily can't be you know, extracted from a portal and an X-ray or an EEG tracing takes a little bit of extra work to get. And sometimes you get pushback from the facility. You do, you, this is not, you don't have a right to this data, like a lot of misunderstanding about what the legal obligations are. It's getting so much better, but the fact that there's still friction associated with it is, is, is a point of frustration for me because it shouldn't be. I want to, I want to ask you about some of the recent changes. Um, yeah. Obama and more recent just now, but I'm going to take us back a little bit, which is just, just to talk about HIPAA. Yeah. HIPAA. So I, I, it was written right to ensure mm-hmm. portability. I mean, it's right there in the name that P yeah. is portability. It's P is portability. Yes. But it, it turns out that HIPAA is now synonymous with everything that makes it harder to move health data. It's like the only thing I ever hear about HIPAA is the HIPAA violation. Yeah. And, and so, so did that just not go as planned? I always wanted to ask somebody that. Yeah, no, I mean, I'll tell you, Yeah, I'll I'll tell you that what, what has ended up happening with HIPAA is mostly a matter of misinterpretation. So because it's a, even though the P is for portability, the laws that we're talking about that place some standards around when you can access, use, and share information and give patients the right to get a copy of it are considered to be privacy laws. And so there's this sort of myth of HIPAA is that it stops information from flowing. But what I have found, including in the years that I actually worked at enforcing HIPAA, is that more often than not, people used HIPAA as an excuse not to share even in circumstances when it clearly, HIPAA clearly said that you could. So a lot of patients would be told, for example, HIPAA doesn't, we can't give you a copy of your data. That would be a HIPAA violation. The exact opposite is true. HIPAA gives patients the right to get their data. Or you or a doctor would say, I can't send you, I can't send your the specialist. Your, this information, unless you come in and fill out a paper consent form, because that would otherwise be a HIPAA violation. Well, that's wrong too, because HIPAA clearly allows for healthcare providers to exchange treatment data about a patient, you know, for treatment purposes without the need to bother the patient for a consent. And yet you still get these sort of um, 
this almost over-interpretation of what the rule provides. And a lot of times when I talk to medical providers, they're like, well, everybody's afraid of getting fined. I'm like, well, that doesn't make any sense because the law, it's not a violation of the law for you to share. And, And frankly, if you tell a patient they can't get their data because of HIPAA, you have just broken the law. You've increased your likelihood of being fined because that's the patient's right. So there's been a lot of of kind of conservative over-interpretation. And sometimes I think privacy becomes the stalking horse for a host of other reasons why entities don't want to share data with each other that that are more about anti you know anti competition and you know sort of a pri- proprietary sense of well this is my data it came from my record and if i give it to this my competitor down the street they're going to take all my patients and and it's just much more comfortable to say well we don't want to risk a privacy violation by sending that data somewhere where we don't know what they will do with it right and if you're on twitter <laughs> Aunt Betty can't have a HIPAA violation, right? It's only healthcare entities that are round by HIPAA. Yes. There's a a certain amount. Okay. So, so, so you've straightened up a lot and thank you so much for that. Uh, Moving on uh, under Obama. Yeah. They passed a rule saying that any test, any procedure you have done, the results of that must be put in your medical record. So it's right that there was sort of an, a new law that gave the patients access. Um, so that the, you're not you can't see me, but she's looking very skeptical. So I'm looking, I'm looking a little skeptical because I'm not sure what law you're talking about. I'm sorry, because there are as a part like, of the ACA. I thought this was a part of the ACA that they said they had to put everything in the medical record. That's no. a requirement. No, okay. no. Um, there are lots of parts of the ACA around, um, because usually what goes into a medical record is kind of a matter of licensure and state medical record laws. Um, whereas once that's in a med, you know, being collected in a medical facility, then you've got HIPAA that gives you sort of rights right. to, to get right. that. So data. maybe I'm going to go on. Is, was there a, was there a regulation saying that the patient had the right to the results? Oh, so so in the not in the Affordable Care Act, but in one of the first laws that President Obama signed as president in 2009 was high tech, the Health Information Technology for Economic and Clinical Health Act It was part of the recovery law that was trying to bring us out of at the time, um, a deep recession by stimulating the healthcare aspect of the economy. And there were a bunch of changes to HIPAA that made it really clear that the patient had the right to get an electronic copy if that's what the patient wanted, because that was a little uncertain, I guess, under HIPAA. And then also that the patient could have that information direct, that information from an electronic medical record, the patient could say, well, I don't want a copy, but I want you to send it here to this other third party. Um, and so that was pretty, that was pretty groundbreaking. Um, so that was definitely something that, um, took place in the Obama administration and is something that frankly, we're still working through the implementation of today. There've been subsequent building on that foundation by the Cures Act in uh, 2016. And there's been some, some recent new regulations, right? Yeah, those are mostly, I think you're talking about the information blocking rules, which were um, sort of authorized in the 21st Century Cures Act. And then it took a couple of years for the Department of Health and Human Services to come up with information blocking regulations. And, And those really kind of escalated 
in particular, the, the ability of patients to get data through portals um, and to get more and more of their data easily connected through portals without charge. So clinicians often have concerns about the exceptions, right? The the pieces yeah. of information that they want to be able to discuss with patients first yeah, or the stuff that patients don't want. And I, my, yeah. um, it's a young woman I'm very close to uh, who's pregnant and who told her genetic counselor she did not want to know the sex from NIPT uh-huh. and that got put straight into her portal. And she said, yeah, but she called me up and she goes, but I know what 2X, no Y chromosome detected means, right? And I'm like, yeah, you know what no Y chromosome detected means. So either because a patient doesn't want information or the provider would like to do something with it first, are there any protections for for that situation? Yeah, there are, but not as many as providers would like. So, you know, historically, HIPAA gave you 30 days to give patients a copy of the record, which frankly was way too long. But we never had any discussions about whether the the physician could look at it at the information first and and then um, you know have a discussion with the patient before the patient saw the data. Um, now we sort of have these portals and 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 when they were initially rolled out, they were they were both they were they were part of an, a payment incentive program for Medicare and Medicaid where physicians got paid more if they gave patients their results in their portals within, you know, I think it was 72 hours of the test having been done. So you still had that sort of bit of time for reaction to occur. What has happened is that under the information blocking rules, the federal agency who wrote those regulations, which is the HHS Office of the National Coordinator, has said, you know what, just having some time, like some random time of for every single test doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. Patients who know they've gotten a test and who are waiting to get those results, it's kind of not fair to them to withhold it. It's they're entitled to that result if they want it. And then they can decide whether they'd have rather have that information communicated to them by a, a physician. And so consequently, we have a, a, a little bit of a mess where even patients who don't necessarily want to have a result in their portal are getting them in their portal. On the other hand, some of the fixes that are being pushed by the medical community are sort of defaulting back to, no, everyone must wait for for 48 to 72 hours before they can get a test result. And, and my question is, why can't we just let the patients choose? Why can't we honor your client or friend or client friend's request not to see the, the gender of her um, of her fetus before she's ready? right? Like why can't we let patients decide when and how they want their results communicated to them versus, you know, we're just, we're, we've decided we have to default everyone into either you get all the information right away, whether you want it or not, or you can't get the information until I'm ready to give it to you or or at least 72 hours, whichever comes first. And, and neither of those feels very satisfactory to me. We, we have peer reviewed articles that have been written about people that never got informed about significant test results, not because the doctor was committing malpractice necessarily, but because they have a lot on their plates and have less and less time to spend with each patient and are overburdened with paperwork 
and responsibilities and medical records has not necessarily alleviated much of that burden, even though that was part of the promise of electronic medical record systems. And so, so I just feel like, why can't we use the technology to help us come to a happy medium in this, in this debate, rather than, you know, each of us in our camps arguing at each other about like the patient's right to get the data when the patient wants it versus the physician and clinicians wanting to have some period of time or to block some data um, from the patient's view. Uh, one thing I could say is that electronic health records not working as promised is a whole other show. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. Yeah. Oh, goodness. <laughs> so, so, so here's a sort of a complaint I have. A lot of what's billed as this democratization of information, let people get straight at their information. Uh, you must have heard a lot about that in your Silicon Valley. Oh, yeah. Sojourn, you know, like yeah. um, a lot of this empowerment dialogue is sort of somewhat clandestinely elitist. Because mm. when your rhetoric promises, you know, freedom from paternalism and freedom from regulation, but the process involves you know, downloading your own DNA data and doing your own analysis of your own results, that's the empowerment of the empowered to a certain extent, right? Like that's not for everybody. So how do we make healthcare data not only accessible, but re readable? Yeah, I mean, I, I it's a really good point. Um, I'm definitely of the mindset that we that efforts to make data more digestible, better understandable, more readable by the average person don't get fixed by not making that data available, right? We still need to continue on that trajectory because because the possibility of building tools that will make that data more understandable, that the market for that improves if in fact that data is more available to be to be loaded into tools like that by by consumers and patients and for them to you know have the ability to seek help um you know beyond this beyond their their immediate medical providers to be able to go to a patient advocacy group and to um leverage resources there um, I, I do think that patients uh, oftentimes understand a bit more than they're given credit for um, having said that, I, I, you know, I'm not a proponent of stopping the conversation at, well, we gave you your data, like, and good luck, right? It, it comes with a concomitant obligation to develop tools and resources for people to make that data work for them, because we can't assume that they will understand it. On the other hand, I'm not going to withhold it from them because I don't think they'll understand it or I don't think they'll do something responsible with it. Like I, I believe in giving people agency, but I believe in giving them support so that they truly can have that kind of agency, even if they, you know, uh, their last science class was in the ninth grade. Fair. So um, sort of switching back to the concern side, the, the, the safety yeah. and privacy side. Yeah. In the medical setting, what are your concerns? Like, what should we be telling patients about about risk? Risk of the idea. Like, what 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 are the what if anything should we be telling them right now about? This? Yeah, well, I I do think there is something to be said for you mentioned Twitter and HIPAA earlier, and the amount of misinformation out on social media, particularly during the pandemic, about what HIPAA does and doesn't cover was just 
flabbergasting. I'm at, at a loss for a better word than something that like came out of the 1950s. It, it's, it's, it's just not all health data is protected by HIPAA. And if you're using applications to help you manage care for yourself or for a family, the chances are, unless that app is connected to your healthcare facility, it may not be covered by privacy laws. And you have to do a bit of work to read through privacy notices and sort of understand what the terms of the arrangement are between you and this product that you're filling up with your medical data. And and that's a tall order. If you think there's not healthcare literacy, there's not good privacy literacy. These documents are written um, for by lawyers. And, and I've written them before, so I know. Like you try to make them understandable to the average person, but they have they are documents that also have some legal import. They're written by the the apps lawyers. They're written by they're the apps. Written by your lawyer. That's no, the thing. they're not written yeah. by your lawyer. That that the, the lawyer no, they're written by the apps to lawyer. Protect the other side. They're, um, they they are written to um, you know there there is another set of laws that um, are managed by the Federal Trade Commission that um, prohibit unfair and deceptive trade practices. And it is a deceptive trade pra- practice to promise something in a privacy policy and then not deliver. And so consequently, the reason why privacy policies are written by lawyers is to make sure that there aren't promises being made that in fact cannot be delivered on. At the same time, they, they are, you know, they're a part of the marketing product, marketing of the product. So you don't want to scare people, but, and you want to be truthful with them. You don't want to overpromise, and you don't want to have to redo your privacy policy every single month. So you say broad things. Than truthful. We want to be truth-ish. We want to be (laughs) (laughs) truth-like. We want to be not legally lying. I don't know. There should be a different word that means not legally lying rather than truthful. Yeah. I mean, obviously the the ethics of the company matter a lot here because i i think that the desire is to be truthful but there not every company sits in that same position and you know sometimes the privacy is official the official's job is to just make sure that the company can accomplish its goals and sometimes the privacy official's job is to help the company act ethically and i like the latter over the former so mm-hmm. But it does matter, and and it's often really hard for a consumer to distinguish. We we migrated there. I was started off talking about cl- clinical risks, and I was going to yeah. ask you about you know so much is happening outside of the clinical space. But we're there now. So, um, and you're talking a little bit about what concerns you in that realm. Yeah. A lot of what consumer protections exist are located not in regulation, but in the terms of service, right? Yeah. Yeah, to be, to to really get down into the nitty gritty of the what are the answers to the typical questions that someone would have before they would use an app, right? What what can you do with my data? How are you sharing my data? What kinds of choices do I have about how I share it? What if I quit your app? What happens to my data? What if you get sold? What happens to my data? Um, what kinds of controls do I have to to sort of turn on and off? the various sharing choices that you give to me. I mean, those are really key questions that a lot of people have um, that sometimes are hard to pull out of the average privacy policy. I've seen some really good ones and I've seen some that are like, wait, what? 
Or like 27 pages. Yeah. They also do tend to be long. Um, That's. Yeah. I'm I'm, I'm thinking. So last night I saw on the news that uh, a company called Keogen bought a company called Virogen. Now that sounds like a bunch of just alphabet soup nonsense, but what turns out to be true is that Virogen bought something called GED Match. And GED Match is a set of tools for the manipulation of um, genetic sequence data for uh, genealogy purposes. And it started off for an amateur uh, pop, it was, it was done by a, a guy as a hobby to begin with, to create these tools for sort of other people. And initially he didn't have any regulations about how it would be used. Could it be used by law enforcement and so on? Because he never thought about it. Never thought yeah. about it becoming, and suddenly it got so big and then it, the killer thing happened and suddenly he needed a policy for how this was going to be used and he said okay they can't but and 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 he put in place a policy where he told people this is how it will be used this is when it will be shared and this won't be shared and um then events happen and he changed that terms of service and so on so it's it's been a a journey um but initially there was the users were being listened to Right. They said they had concerns. He's like, okay, we'll change the terms of service so that you have to opt in and so on. Mm-hmm. Now it's gone from one private company to another private company. And you know, I just quickly went and read their about me on their websites. And their sort of raison d'etre is, you know, to sell services to law enforcement. It's one of their their pieces oh. of their business. So I don't think there's very much doubt that that's going to be a change in the terms of service. And I've already seen that. They could just do that overnight. Not quite, All but right. close to it. Not, yeah. not quite, but close to it. So, so the again, it, when you're talking about the commercial company context in the U.S., they do have an obligation to again abide by uh, expectations of the Federal Trade Commission around unfairness and deception. And it would be decept. It would be arguably unfair and maybe even deceptive. To change to radically change terms of service in a data collection enterprise and make those immediately effective overnight without telling people ahead of time and giving them an opportunity to stop using the product. Um, you can't you usually, if they don't give you choices, you you can't make the whole company do an opt-in because you would prefer an opt-in, but you always have the opportunity to take your business elsewhere. But for for a company not to tell you about something that major as a change in in policy is 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 very would be very concerning to the FTC, um, and is likely to subject the company at a minimum to an investigation and potentially um, penalties and and sort of requirement to do a, a some sort of corrective action plan that they're supposed to stick to. Now, now we could probably have another show altogether about the effectiveness of the FTC decrees and whether they're properly staffed to investigate some of the companies in this space, but let's set, to, set that to the side. What would typically happen in a, in a circumstance like this is there would be a change in the terms of service and that would get, it would come to you in in an email because most companies have some way of getting in touch with you i would think and it would say we're going to change our policies in 30 days and most people never paid attention to the email 
never saw it, didn't even think to read it, to open it. We're busy. We get, you know, every time we, we, we sign up for something online, suddenly we're being bombarded by emails from that product for like, we try to get off the mailing list. Right. Somehow I've probably it never already happened. spammed them. I've probably yeah. already sent them to my spam folder. Like, yeah, it, right. And and it may not have even right. And and your email client may have already filtered that out of your out of your site line. So, um, it's it, it is hard to get people's attention, and all they needed to do was give you notice. And maybe it's quite possible that they never collected your email and the address in the first place that where they gave you notice was on the website, which you haven't visited in, in years. Right. So, so that's the way it goes down. It's, and, and it's unfortunate. And, you know, it's one of the reasons why I, I, we need federal privacy legislation. Every other country, including ones that are far less developed than ours has privacy legislation that that provides stronger protections for personal data, including health data, but not limited to health data. And, and we don't. We have not succeeded in getting that. And and are they working in those other countries? Are they making a difference? Well, that could be another whole show. I mean, I think it, it, there have been some very high profile um, settlements with uh, tech companies, for example, they're, um, you know, if you ask any tech company, they will tell you that they work very hard and devote a lot of resources to, you know, complying with, with their obligations on these overseas privacy laws. Um, but it's certainly a better situation to have laws on the books and be fighting about whether we're enforcing them well enough than to have not, than to have very little. I don't want to say nothing. I don't want to insult the Federal Trade Commission. They do have some authorities, but they're understaffed. And and overworked, and there's just much too much going on out there to not be devoting more resources to this, and it and it affects a lot of people. So that's what you would do. That was sort of my sort of my sign off question. Like, <laughs> if if Bob Nussbaum wins the presidency in 2024, oh. you in charge. I know it's a nice thought. Right? That is a really nice thought. <laughs> I don't think he wants the job, but how nice would that be? <laughs> Uh, who would um and puts you in charge would you what what this is what you would do you would put in place some privacy regulation well i would and and oddly enough but there there's a limit to what i could do because i would need i would need congress to actually give me more authority to 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 do that i mean even the, the oh hell no of, yeah hell no, you can't exactly the current head of the ftc is as strong as i would be in this space and but she's got she's got limits to where she can go because she needs some more authority and probably more than likely some more money from this congress and we we have just seen over the past couple of weeks where we're headed this year with this congress there's only one thing those guys want to regulate oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> and 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 that's actually a question I, I i didn't have time to ask you so i'm not gonna have time to ask you because that's a whole area we talk about apps and privacy and yeah so on. that's a real buyer beware situation right now right i'm talking about pregnancy apps anything yes related to you. i knew exactly what you were talking about yes it is of deep concern deep concern i knew we was going to run out of time on this interview because i had so many questions and and just been wonderful to have you here and get your expertise and get told what I was wrong about. That's fantastic. I always <laughs> Just one that. thing, actually. <laughs> <laughs> it was very good. It was really fun to have this discussion. Yeah. Great. We'll have to have you back for some of these like alternative shows that we've been like hypothesizing through the, uh, through the podcast. For now, thank you. Thank you all for listening. 
Go to the website, follow me on Twitter, all that good stuff. Take care and stay safe, everybody.